Mysterious Brighton, with this evening's guest Paula Wrightson, author of Mr. Robert and the Ghost. Preston Manor, located in the semi-rural, semi-urban Preston Park district of Brighton and Hoy, has been dubbed the most haunted house in England. The manor house itself was immediately preceded by religious structures on the land circa the 13th century. This includes the ruins of St. Peter's Catholic Church. Within its grounds lay the cemetery. The word Preston is from the Saxon language meaning priest's turn or priest's town. The law surrounding the church is integral to one of Preston Manor's most celebrated ghosts. The Stanford family, who owned and occupied the existing manor house from 1794, bequeathed the building and grants to the Brighton Corporation early in 1932. More than three decades prior to their deaths, a series of unusual occurrences were reported by the women in the extended family involving what they believed to be supernatural sightings of a white lady, shredded fabric on the stairs, and unpleasant odors that permeated the house. Workmen and psychics were called in to uncover the source of these ongoing preternatural experiences. Brighton residents who are familiar with the tales of hauntings at Preston Manor, ghost hunters and visitors just learning about its history may be surprised to know that Lady Ellen herself was not a complete believer in the supernatural. Historian Paula Wrightson is the author of Mr. Roberts and the Ghost. The people who were into spiritualism were the McDonald's Thomas Stanford's mother and one of her half-sisters, Lily. Ellen Thomas Stanford was a skeptic. It's from that family that we have all these wonderful stories. And we have the stories really by luck because they didn't hand these stories over when they handed over the house as a museum. It was only through letters between John Bennett Stanford and the first curator of Preston Manor, Henry Roberts, that we even know anything about the birds. We wouldn't have known if it wasn't for those letters. John's interest in the family ghost, Eleanor MacDonald and her, her daughter Lily, held bounces in a little room called the Plebe Room, and it's an extraordinary room. It's hung with leather wallpaper and black and gold. It really does look like a, a secret dark little room, just perfect. They would have held multiple seances because they were practicing spiritually, and that's... It was a sort of religion of the day, if you like it, um, an alternative religion, the belief that there was an afterlife, same as the Christian religions, but that you could contact people who were living you know, in, in the afterlife. And that's what they actually did believe. Ritualism, psychic phenomena and common hauntings were popular subjects in Victorian and Edwardian England. Lady Ellen hosted a spiritualist evening in Preston Manor to discover the true identity of the mysterious lady. The Cleves Room, informally known as the Seance Room, was the venue. The 11th of November 1896 in the Cleves Rooms, and that seance was limited, if you like. So someone sat in the corner of the room and, and wrote down the proceedings. So there's a transcript of that seance. So we have a copy at Preston Manor, and there's also a copy of the transcript at the British Library in London. 
because attending was a family member for Douglas Murray and he was a member of the Victorian Ghost Club and the Society for Psychical Research. These are very important parapsychological groups in the late Victorian period. So he, all the minutes of the meetings of the Ghost Club now exist in the British Library. Anyone could go and see them. You, you, you could go up to the British Library and order them and, and go and have a read of, of them. So we're very lucky that there are two sources of information about what happened at that particular seance. The far-fetched story that the structure had been built over the remains of a forgotten, excommunicated nun from the 13th century was offered by psychics from the famed Ghost Club. These were serious seances. Um, um, they had one of the most famous spiritualistic mediums of the day come along. Her name was Ada Gudrichkaya, a very, very famous character. And she conducted the seance. So it's through Miss Prayer that the voices spoke from the other side. They, they wanted to contact a ghost that had been seen in the house. But they called the white lady. They'd seen this figure dressed in white wandering around the house, walking through walls. And they realized that she was some kind of spirit and was perhaps lost between heaven and earth, heaven and hell maybe even. And they wanted to be able to help her and this is very Victorian very philanthropic how can we help this poor lost soul I know we will have a seance we will ask her some questions and we will ask how can we help you so that was their purpose for holding the seance psychics claimed the nun confirmed that two other spirits of unnamed nuns remained in Preston Manor unable to rest as they too had been excommunicated by the friar called Father Peter the Stanfords, who were the wealthiest landowners in Sussex, temporarily abandoned the house just after Christmas Day in 1896, leaving it in the care of his servants. Structural work was required to remedy an issue which was believed to have been drug drains. The workmen arrived at the property on a day in January to make a discovery that Lisa, the women in the Stanford family, would go on to share, became the centre of a 400-year-old mystery. In the modern era, DNA would have decisively revealed the identity of the skeletal remains that had lain hidden, and forensics would have timestamped the incident. The Stanford family defaulted to a reliance on occultism, and possibly eccentricity, to solve the mystery. Family subsequently buried the remains in the churchyard, which is still adjacent to Preston Manor. Beyond the family, there were no witnesses. However, despite the tale of the good Christian burial, the ground was no longer consecrated. Again, the lore around her hauntings has more flourish as the philanthropic gesture did nothing to put Sister Agnes on her journey to the afterlife. Sightings were shared prior to the seance. Psychic's livelihood hinged on supernatural spectacle. Uh, Ada Gushfreya, the medium who came along, she was the woman who created the whole myth of Sister Agnes. Sister Agnes was the, the ghost that Ada Gushfreya said that she contacted in the seance. So you can either, if you believe in spiritualism, 
paid a good wish for a red while talking to a dead nun. But if you are skeptic, you will say, well, this lady's just made up a great story to um, to tell the people at the seance because mediums were paid and it was their job to go to rich people's houses and conduct seances. So you've got to come up with a good one. Uh, <laughs> Lily and her sister Diana, the twins, were very unusual girls and they lived in quite a fair amount of seclusion. And Diana had a conventional life. She went off and got married, as young Victorian girls with great to do. But Lily didn't. She stayed on at home. And in my research, I found that Lily was an old character. Um, she may have had uh, disturbances in her own mind and created or thought that she saw ghosts or it could have been that the two girls made up stories and because they were two teenage girls living at home much to fill their very inventive minds and they may have just made it all up. Manor's ghostly lady is essentially a long-running court case from the end of the Victorian era, when science was rudimentary to non-existent to the present day. While the Stanfords may have truly believed the psychic's rather dramatic account, is it more likely that the bones, if genuine, could have been more recent than claimed? That the woman, whomever she had been in life, may have been missing or murdered? Whoever was responsible may have in fact buried her body under the terrace in the belief that the remains would never be discovered. But Paula Wrightson has another theory. As someone who knows the unique personalities of an already eccentric family, she can see a different story shaping up, one that may have caused the chagrin of true believers and may have proved awkward for professional media. A genuine archaeological find, and Brighton is very rich in archaeology because it's it's incredibly uh, populated uh, period throughout history, going back to Neolithic times. So archaeological, one. It could be a churchyard burial. The piece of land in which the bones were found was once the graveyard of St. Peter's Church. It was co-opted by one of the lords of the manor of Preston turned into part of the gardens. So the eastern side of the gardens of Preston Manor are an old cemetery. So it could just be um, the bones were some soul who was buried in the churchyard and dug up in 1897 by the workmen. So archaeological, churchyard burial. Number three, it could be a prank. And this is my theory. Present in January 1897 was 26-year-old John Bennett Stanford, Ellen Thomas Stanford's son. He was a notorious prankster, and he loved to mess around with skeletons. That was his big thing all through his life. He acquired anatomical skeletons used by medical students, and he was known to dangle them out of windows to scare ladies who were staying as guests in the house. He also put a skeleton in a new butler's bed. So the poor chap, when he went to bed at night and pulled back his blankets, he found a skeleton lying in his bed. And Jack Bennett Stanford, or John Bennett Stanford, goes by both names. He had a house called Pit House in Wiltshire, 
in the cellars of Pitt House, there was a real skeleton known as Molly, and she was associated with legends in the house down there. And he used to travel around with Molly in his car sometimes. So here's a young man with almost an obsession. There's the workman working away on the drains. I think he nipped out with one of his fake skeletons in a box, put it down and said, look, find the workman, get they discover it, and um, it gets dug up. He called a doctor in to verify the bones, and I looked into who this doctor was, and the doctor was also a young man, Dr. Glaber, and... The two young men may have been in cahoots with each other they, they, and, and um, enjoyed playing a prank. And it, it's well known that, that medical uh, people, medical students particularly, always used to enjoy pranking each other. It was a, yeah, it was a very common thing to do. Strangely, the skeleton itself disappeared shortly after its discovery, making it impossible for anyone, including the police, to investigate. Had they wished to your garden and you dig up a human remain, you will immediately call the police and the police will turn up and they will ascertain whether it was um, uh, the skeleton or what human remains you found or what sort of age they are. And if they are bones of antiquity, the police will go away and you will bring in your local archaeologist. So um, two separate things. is It depends on the age of the bones, doesn't it? So if you're going to dig up some bones in your garden it's found to be 10 years old, probably going to be a murder. But if you dig up some bones and they're found to be 400 years old, it could be a murder, but they're bones of antiquity. With everyone willing to go along with this spiritual explanation and Jack Stanford putting his hands up to have buried Sister Agnes in the churchyard on his own, any other possibilities disappear. Beyond preternatural fantasies was a culture where poor and working-class women were disposable. Was the community of Preston Village forgetting women who had gone missing from the area in the 1890s? Hove connection with London's Jack the Ripper has been long-standing after the discovery of Catherine Eddowes, who had been found murdered, mutilated and partially exposed in East London's Mitre Square. The doctor who forensically examined Eddowes' corpse concluded that the attack on her had been frenzied. This contradicted but did not disprove a theory that Jack the Ripper may have been a surgeon. Compared to the Ripper's four other London victims, Adar's death apparently had been mercifully quick. After the Adar's murder, a mere contemporary of Jack the Ripper came to the attention of Hoofbury. Brighton was a town known for its murder and grisly stories, and it was known as the Queen of Slaughtering Places at one point. So many were the uh, grisly death in Brighton. So I wonder if Jack the Ripper came down to Brighton and, and, and went about his trade, whether it would even have been noticed with all the other gruesome things going on in the town. Alan Krasminski was a 23-year-old barber who lived in East London during the time of Jack the Ripper's killing spree. At the time, residents in the area who knew of Krasminski claimed that he had demonstrated signs of extreme mental illness. In 1888, when Jack the Ripper's violence was in full flow, Krasminski turned up in a police convalescent home in Clarendon Villas in Hove. There, he was reportedly identified by Joseph Lewend, a cigarette salesman who shared Krasminski's background and knew him from the area, more specifically, Mitre Square. 
this identification came two years after the Yadas killing and seven years prior to the discovery of the skeletal remains under Preston Manor. Kuzminski himself seems to have disappeared in the interim. He may have recovered and returned to London or became lost in the streets of Brighton, which was growing in popularity as a result that attracted the wealthy and famous. Stories of assaults against women remain a consistent part of the modern news cycle in urban areas. Brighton is no exception, with around four women in every thousand victims of crime, some of these very violent. The city has inherited a dangerous legacy for vulnerable women and girls. While sexual assault was a criminal act during the reign of Queen Victoria and later her son, King Edward VII, it was a crime that was difficult to prove. Stories from the era anecdotally speak to men's absolute control of the judicial system. Courts found in favor of the accused in the majority of cases. However, murder was something else again. Killing women, whether sex workers or housemates, was a capital crime, punishable by hanging. most known period, the number of men working in domestic services plummeting, particularly in Brighton, because there was so much alternative work that you could do. So domestic servants by the 1890s and 1900s were mostly very behind families who would have made their servants more like members of the family. You would have had very unkind families who treated their servants badly. And then you would have had the ordinary families, which was the great mass of people who employed their servants, like someone would be employed in a hotel or somewhere like that. And the servants came and went because there was quite a big turnover. People tended to move around a lot in domestic service. And people came and went through your house over the years as servants. And they really weren't thought about that highly. There were six young women working at, at Preston Manor and three men, so double the number of, of women, two men. And the oldest woman working there was Emma Smith, who was 34, and the youngest, Beatrice Ranger, who was 17, and the others were all in their 20s. So that's a very standard range of uh, age groups for people, women working in domestic service. So mostly women in their teens and 20s. So the house was looked after by the house steward or butler, a very similar sort of type or very similar sort of job that that person did, and the housekeeper. So uh, the senior male servant, the house steward or butler, and the senior female servant, the housekeeper. And they would keep other servants on to do all the, the rough work, if you like. And in the period when the house was empty, a lot of cleaning went on, where they would clean out rooms in totality and give it a good old scrub and, and, and brush up. And they, they, they worked hard. 
these people certainly died of, of all sorts of accidents in houses. If you're working in a big house and you're climbing ladders to clean things, you see fall off ladders, people trip downstairs, women working in a house, we were in long skirts, tripping downstairs happened. And um, so accidents would happen. But if an accident happened in the Victorian or Edwardian period, the same process would happen today. You would have to call the police and report and report that there had been a death in the house um, because that was the law. And if you if you didn't report the police that had been a death in the house, you you were breaking the law and you you, you could go to prison. Servants did have families who they wrote to regularly and sent their wages to. So if you stopped hearing from your, your relative who was working in domestic service, you, you would chase it up and ultimately you, you would call the police and say this person was from missing and it would be investigated and you'd get a knock on the door from the local police force. So like in the Victorian Edwardian days, in that respect, we're very similar to how it would have been today. Unless the family did something very similar and employed a young girl with no family, and girls were employed from orphanages, and that person came to a grisly end and was, was they decided to dispose of her. But people living in that time were very religious, they couldn't believe in morals. And I find it very hard to think that anyone would go against the principles of their faith. John Montague Bennett Stanford was an army officer, an explorer, a hunter, a filmmaker and photographer who documented both the Boer War in Southern Africa and the First World War. Jack Bennett Stanford's reputation as a rake was cultivated amongst males in his social class. He may have done. He, he may have been the type of, of man who, who made a noose himself around the around the uh, female servants. Um, however, the the household at the manor was there were a lot of uh, women in the household, and not not women in the family. And girls could, if if you're being troubled by a man in the family, you would go first to the housekeeper, who was your line manager, if you like, and you would you would say, "I am being troubled by it," and it would be dealt with internally. So again, it's a, a man of who wanted to be aristocratic. He was found by the rules of gentlemanly behaviour. And although John Bennett's found for like a lot of men would have eyed the servant looking for a pretty girl, his, the rules of being an English gentleman were very, very strong in those men and they, they, they might have wanted to um, make a nuisance of themselves around the girls, but actually um, forcing themselves on, on, on the girls was um, unlikely, I would say. Although, of course, it did happen. I don't think John was to start his own family in the late 1890s. He fathered three children with his wife, Evelyn Hume. Preston Manor was left to the servants and renovations for the majority of time. Rumors of unexplained deaths with the individuals closely associated with the Stanfords have precedent. Although as time has passed, the manor house has become cocooned in supernatural mythology. Forgotten deaths and accidents may make for less comfortable storytelling, but this variation of haunted history is as much a part of England's broader Victorian and Edwardian legacy. The Stanford family's history of unfortunate events is little different. 
house that came to Brighton, given to the town of Brighton as a gift in 1932, it became a museum in 1933. The legends of the ghosts were really squashed down. They, were, they weren't really talked about until about the end of the 1990s and into the 2000s. So the, the family stories weren't widely known. However, everybody working at Preston Manor has had some kind of strange experience. And when I started gathering these stories, which I, I did gathering them for since about 2006, that sort of time, and, and people gathered them for me, we have a huge stock of experiences that either people working at Preston Manor have had or visitors to Preston Manor have had who come downstairs, maybe from walking around the bedroom upstairs and come down and said, oh, while I was in this room, um, this is what happened. So I collected all those stories over the years and there's this huge number of sightings and experiences and some of them I have to say are, are very very convincing indeed and I gathered them all together and I, I, I put them in a book so you, you can purchase that book through the Bryson Ho Museum so many stories about hauntings and some of them are so creepy and so real for haunted. I mean, I'm a sceptic, so I don't really believe in ghosts. But if I had to say, was this person manor haunted? I suppose the answer would probably have to be yes. And the other question I get asked myself is, have you ever seen a ghost? Or have you ever seen a ghost person manor? And although I'm a sceptic, I've seen two. So there we are. Whatever the true identity of the unfortunate woman now possibly resting uneasily in the grounds of the manor house, the Stamfords were a leading family who gave back to Brighton and Hove, not least through the gift of property. John Banner Stamford contributed to documenting the era. The ghostly reputation of Preston Manor itself holds much of the family's identity so that the house itself has adopted its own persona. It seems the haunted manor takes precedence over a court case of a late Victorian Jane Doe or a wealthy prankster who enjoyed shocking those around him. For more than a century, Sister Agnes, who is unlikely to have ever existed in this life or the next, has been the most well-known resident of Preston Manor. She and other invisible residents continue to attract the spiritually curious to Brighton and Hove. The Other Lady of Preston Manor was narrated by Andrea Cosa, written and produced by Laurie Garlington. Special thanks to Nicola Adams. Mysterious Brighton is a Boca Media production. <laughs>